The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Baptist Church, we know there are always so many needs. Father, we submit all those to you as well. We pray this today in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, we are in Hebrews chapter 12 excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, this is kind of the, uh, this is kind of where the uh, pilot tells you to, to get, get back to your seats and buckle up because we're getting ready to make our final descent. Do you get that feeling as we come to the end of chapter 12? And chapter 13 will take us through about Easter time-ish, another, uh, another several weeks, few weeks, but uh, God be praised. Someone asked this last week, where, what are we doing next? And uh, to be honest with you, we, we, uh, uh, I always hope we're honest, but especially here, that we asked about last year, fall time, we, we considered doing, and, and that's still the primary on the, on the docket, is to go verse by verse through the book of Genesis, starting in May, uh, after a little break between Easter and Mother's Day and all. We're also considering uh, uh, going through the book of Revelation, which uh, immediately everyone's eyes perk up, right? High attendance Sunday, every Sunday, right, as it comes. But will you pray for us. This is not a matter of wanting to shift gears in any sh- way, shape, or form. Both are admirable. Uh, but we, there are some connections between Hebrews 12 and the ending of Hebrews 13 that connect, uh, as it were, more directly to Revelation. We chose Genesis earlier because we wanted to flip back to the Old Testament. You preach new, you preach old. You just go back and forth, law, gospel stuff. But we'll see. You pray for us. We'll let you know. You'll find out in several weeks. But until then, we're in Hebrews chapter 12. So no, we're not in the book of Revelation yet, or Genesis yet. We'll get there. Well, there was a story of a man several years ago, a Native American, was walking down the streets of New York with a famous businessman. And he stopped, uh, the Native American did, and said, listen. And the businessman said, what? He said, don't you hear that? He said, what? What do I not hear? Crickets. The Native American man said, crickets. And the businessman said, crickets, I don't hear any. So he continued to try and help this businessman hear what he heard. He said, oh, brother, they're loud. They're really loud. Don't you hear them? And he was getting a little mad at this point, but the businessman said, I don't hear any crickets. Where do you hear these crickets? And the Native American man looked around, and on the right side near him, there was a cricket. And he went and picked it up. And so the businessman looked shocked. He said, I can't believe in the middle of New York City, of all things, that you could hear crickets. I don't know how you did that. So the Native American took out a handful of change. He threw it up, and immediately it hit the ground. And what did all the people do? They hear that pretty well, don't they? 20 people or more turned around, and the Native American man who had grown up in the country and and grown up around the, the wilderness said, he said, you always hear what you're tuned to. You are tuned to money, and you're going to hear a penny or a nickel or a dime hit the ground. I'm tuned to nature. What I heard was a cricket. It's a good illustration for us, isn't it? Because as we consider where many Christians are, many Christians will miss the voice of God in a similar way because they are not tuned in, if you will, to what God is saying and what God is doing. In fact, if you want to hear God speak, simply open your Bible and read it out loud, and behold, the audible voice of God can be heard. And that's what Revelation 1.15 tells us. Yeah, I said I wasn't studying it, but here I am quoting it, right? Here it is. Revelation 1.15 says, His feet were like burnished bronze, 
when it was made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. We need to hear the voice of the God, don't we, church? And we don't need a special character anymore. We have what is now written, the final verses for us in the word of God. But it's the voice that calls forth light from the darkness. It's the voice that breaks cedars. It's the voice, as God's voice is, as it were, that, that calms the storms and says, it is I, do not be afraid. So as long as the gift of the scriptures is around, we have the enduring voice of God. And this day, we need to be reminded, how has God spoken? How is he speaking? And what happens if we refuse to listen to his frequency, as it were? The big idea is simply this, is that when God speaks, he doesn't whisper, but he roars. And when he speaks, his voice drowns out every other talking head and opinion. And church, you need to know that today. Because as we go through this last chapter of Hebrews, you need to be reminded that when we were born again, we have new ears. John 10, 4 and 5 says, Jesus saying, The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, for they do not know the voice of strangers. But Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. We know the Bible is the voice of Jesus, because when we hear it, we hear his voice. Maybe not audibly but we hear it written down for the pages of Scripture that we have. And you may listen to him anytime you please on a hundred of topics, but it all starts right here. Do you believe that God still speaks today? Yes, I do. And he speaks through his word. That's why we believe, if you're visiting with us, that the Bible is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. It's not someone walking around saying, oh, guess what? Jesus told me this and it contradicts everything in here. Or I got a word from the Lord, brother, and I'm going to preach it. No, if it contradicts it in here, go walk away very, very quickly. But this morning, as we look through Hebrews 12, you're going to see once again the dichotomy of people. Remember, there's two people he's writing to. He's writing to some who are Christian, who are under heavy persecution, who are dying for their faith, suffering for their faith, who hear the voice of God, they know the truth, and there's these other people. Maybe that's you today who are walking with the people of God, but you're not a person of God. You're not a son or child or daughter of God. You know the things about God in your head, but you've never truly believed them in your heart. Some of them are hearing the voice of God. Some of them are coming up just a little bit short. In fact, he will say, are refusing to hear the word of God. With that in mind, will you join me in standing if you're able to this morning as we go through Hebrews chapter 12, start in verse 18, go down to the end of the chapter, and we are one chapter closer to finishing another book at Tower View Baptist Church. You feel like you age 90 years every year you do it in a good way, but God knows. Uh, uh, I think Brother Richard and I were talking. He, he reminds me often that it took us about three years, didn't it, to get through the book of Mark. Brother, we're getting here in 15 months. We're doing all right, aren't I'm just kidding. It's all God's word, and we joke about that. But it is a good, it's been a good study, and we look forward to the next several weeks as well. Hebrews 12. Verse 18 and following. For you have not come up, or excuse me, for you have not come what may be touched a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest and a sound of a trumpet or a voice whose words uh, made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For verse 20, they could not endure that order that was given. If the beach even touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
to the innumerable angels in the festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the covenant, of the, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There is power in the blood, isn't there? See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, verse 25, when they refused to warn them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At the time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is what, church? A consuming fire. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We thank you that you have spoken to us. The book of Hebrews opens up in chapter 1 that reminds us it's not through angels or Moses or the law or, or, or the nation of Israel, but verses 1 and 2 remind us as we studied so many months ago in January 2022 that you've spoken once and for all through your Son. And Father, we are grateful that we who are in Christ have the final say on our souls, not because we did anything, but because Christ said we are his and he called our name. Father, would you open our hearts this morning, teach us what you will, encourage those this morning that may be those refusing the voice of God to accept the voice of God, just as those two men in that illustration said, you really hear what you want to hear. Yet, Lord, we know what you say and what we hear is the ultimate truth, not because it's just simply written down, but because it's a divinely inspired, final, authoritative from your hand. We pray all this today in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Well, today, how does God speak to us? And if you're taking notes, this will all be within your bulletin. But I do want you to see, first off, that God speaks to us today about a way. God speaks to us today about a way. And we're going to break this down over verses 18 through 24. But basically, you know, all religion can be summarized in two ways. There is a religion of human achievement there's a religion that you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you do your best, and, and, and that God graves on a curve. It's the perfect American religion. It really is. Because if you go to any other culture, usually most people work together with other people. And I love our nation, but one thing that really gets us is that we are so individual. It's my world, it's my faith, it's my whatever. And that is the perfect American religion. I can get to God by myself. But there's another religion. It's a religion of divine accomplishment where God knows how bankrupt we are. And in fact, God provides and supplies his own son to die for us and pay the penalty that we deserve. God gives it to us free. It's a prepaid gift, and we only bring our sin to bear. Now, why do I bring those things up? Because what I just said is an outline of what the writer of Hebrews has just told you. You notice there in verses 18 through 24, there are two mountains that are mentioned. There is Mount Sinai and there is Mount Zion. One is a mountain that doesn't save and one is a mountain that does. Let's look first off at the mountain that does not save, the, the mountain of human achievement, Mount Sinai. He says there in verse 18, for you have not come, for you have not. Who's he talking to? He's talking once again to these people who are in the church, in the body of believers, but are not truly believers. They're not Christians. They're fake Christians. They're false converts, whatever you want to call them. They're not yet in the fold. He says, if you're going to be saved, you can't come 
through the way that used to be the way. You can't be saved by keeping the law. So what is Mount Sinai? Where is that? Well, it's a physical mountain. It's a mountain where the law was given. You remember in Exodus 20? Actually, if you'll hold your spot there for just a second, if you'll flip with me to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 19, I'll give you a moment to get there. But Mount Sinai was a place where the people of Israel camped out after coming out of Egypt. And Moses went up on the mountain, and you remember what he did? He got the Ten Commandments, and he came down from the mountain, and all the stuff we're about to read about ensues. He gave, God gave him the law. But in Exodus 20, second book of the Bible here, verse 18, it says, Now, and this is after the Ten Commandments, Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. You would be too, and I would be too, and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us. We will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. So Moses said to the people, verse 20, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that their fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This Mount Sinai, you can go back to Hebrews 12, this Mount Sinai listed in Exodus 20 and mentioned in Hebrews 12 has several features. These are not on your notes, but I'll just go through them quickly. It said there was a blazing fire. Exodus 20 in chapter 12, verse 18, a blazing fire. There was fire coming out of the mountain. It wasn't a volcano, but God was causing fire to come forth as a way of showing his power and his holiness. There was also a thick cloud, kind of, in a sense, looks like out today with all the fog and things, a thick cloud that surrounded the mountain. And it speaks of the powerful wind that began to blow. And it's a reminder that our God, Hebrews 12, 29, is a consuming fire. And then also, in other places, there was a sound, Hebrews 12 tells us, of a trumpet. A sound of a trumpet. Now, as New Testament believers, we think of a trumpet. What do we think of? We think of the return of Christ, don't we? The, at the last trumpet, the, the, the trumpet of the archangel. But a trumpet was always ushering in royalty. And so the features of this Mount Sinai, this, this, this mountain that doesn't save of human achievement, is one that God is speaking. The king has come. But notice Hebrews 12.20. It says, For they could not endure the order that was given. God told them not even to touch the mountain. If they touched it, they would die. If they touched it, they would die. It reminds you of the Ark of the Covenant, doesn't it? No, I'm not talking about the Indiana Jones and the uh, whatever the first one was where they tried to get the Ark of the Covenant with the Nazis, that, that kind of thing, but the real Ark of the Covenant. They would put up barriers so that no one would stumble on it. They carried it with poles. And in this case, the mountain was so holy, they would put up barriers so the animals wouldn't go there. What does all this mean? And this will be on the screen for you. Is that God care, God's care comes in many, many forms. In fact, one of the greatest cares that he has for you is in his law, the Old Testament. That God is caring enough to protect for you and define for you what sin is what sin is. He knew, the writer of Hebrews knew, the audience would understand. He reminds them there's nothing they can do to get up to God. He reminds them that no mercy or grace or forgiveness is at Mount Sinai. No one is able to keep the law of God. You ever want to test someone whether they know the truth? You want to, you want to ask them if they're a sinner? Ask them this. Ask them three questions. You can pick any, but here's some. Have you ever lied before? And what are most people going to say? Oh, I've never lied before. Well, there's your first lie, right? 
If you lie, what's that make you? Makes you a liar. Or you can take it a little deeper. Let's say, have you ever stolen anything before? And they'll say, no, I've never stolen anything before. Well, how can I trust you? You just said you're a liar, right? I mean, come on. Or you've sinned again. If you steal, you're a what? Most people will say they're a stealer. But no, if you steal, you're a thief. Yeah. And then you go on. Where am I getting all these from? From the law. And you can even ask, especially guys, and say, have you ever, Jesus said, if you lusted after a woman in your, in your mind, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And they say, oh, no, 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 no. I'd never do that before. And Jesus says, if you've done that, you've broken the commandments. Galatians 3.10 says that we're under a curse, and cursed is the one who doesn't abide by the things of the law. James 2.10 says you break one commandment, you're guilty of them all. A lot of people will say they're pretty good people, but that's like a murderer going before the judge and saying, oh man, I only killed one person, you can't send me to jail forever. I didn't kill all those billions of people. But one person is still one person, isn't it? It's one life that was taken. The point is, is that God gives you the law so that he will expose your sin. And in exposing your sin, he takes you away from the mountain that can't save to the mountain that can save. Let's look at that in verse 22. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, the mountain that does save. But you have come to Mount Zion. Who's he talking about? Well, in verses 18 through 21, he's referring to those without Christ, who know the truth, but yet have not come to the truth. But now he's speaking to those who have been saved. So what is Mount Zion? Well, Sinai, the, the mountain that doesn't save, is the law of Moses. But Zion is the gospel of Christ. Sinai is the knowledge of sin. You know you sinned. But at Zion, you know you can be forgiven. At Sinai, there's condemnation. At Zion, there's salvation. At Sinai, there's bad news. At Zion, there is what? Good news. At Sinai, the wages of sin is death. But at Zion, Z-I-O-N, there is the free gift of God given to us in Christ. Sinai is literally hell, if you will. Zion is heaven. Do you see the compare and contrast? He is agreeing that they have come to a cross and weighed in the balances. Which are you going to choose? And so there are two Mount Zions in Scripture. This is not in your notes, but there are two Mount Zions in Scripture. There is the earthly Mount Zion. You might have heard this referred to before in in the Psalms. We read about Mount Zion all the time. It's the highest point in the southeast corner of Jerusalem. It's the location where David took over the Jebusites in 1 Samuel. It's the place where Solomon built his temple. It's the place where Jesus died for your sins, that same area. And it's the place where Jesus ascended. Zion's pretty important, isn't it? That's the earthly Zion. Well, the heavenly Zion is where the new Jerusalem is. And it also describes it in seven ways. You ready for this? It's right in your Bible, straight out of here. What is this Mount Zion? Well, first off, he calls it the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, that's a lot of phraseology. What is he talking about here? Well, if you go back to chapter 11, verse 10, it tells us what this is. Chapter 11, verse 10 says that they were looking forward to a city whose foundations and builder and designer is who? J.E. Dunn Construction out of Kansas City? No, God. So the heavenly Jerusalem, he's saying, look, come to the guy that saves you, not just the guy, but the God-man who saves you. He is in a heavenly Jerusalem. He's in a city that is not like any you've ever seen before. And that is good for us to know. John in Revelation, there it is again, right? John in Revelation 20 verse 2 says, it's a city made ready for the Lamb of God, where it says the Lord is the temple. 
There's no need for human light or electricity because the lamb himself is the light of life and lights it all up. Christian, you will live there one day, amen? But notice what he also says there in verses 22 and 23 and 24. He says there's going to be myriads or innumerable angels. Hey, pastor, I can stump you with a theological question. You know what it's going to be? I got a pen. Pastor, how many angels can dance on the head of this pen, right? You ever asked anyone that before? And the answer is, who cares, right? Nobody cares. What really matters is where are they at? These angels, they're innumerable. You may have in your Bible myriads. That's probably the better translation there, innumerable. This is the word uh, in the Greek that is the 10,000. It's the highest number in Greek. And there are myriads and myriads, Revelation 5.11 says. You can write that down, look it up. Perhaps billions on billions. Daniel 7.10 says there are thousands upon thousands of angels. So what are the angels? What are they here to do? Well, there's one archangel, Michael, Jude 9. There are chief priest angels, Daniel 10.13. There are ruling angels in Ephesians 3.10. There are the cherubim and the seraphim of Genesis 3 and Isaiah 6. But Hebrews 1.14 tells you, what do angels do for you here on this earth? They are ministering spirits. And if some of you are over the age of 30, you remember back in the 90s, there was a show called Touched by an Angel. You all know that one way too well. And that was a show that had about that much truth in it about what angels actually do. But in heaven someday, if we know Christ, we will have a heavenly Jerusalem surrounded by angels. And we don't worship angels, but they point to a God who is big. But do you notice who else is going to be there? Look at verse 23, I believe it is. Who else is going to be within the city? It says, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. My wife and I will tell you as we enroll our kids for different things, we're entering that phase where we're starting to do extracurricular activities. The one thing every one of us hates is enrollment. You know what I mean? They charge you an arm and a leg, and you don't have an arm after you write it or type it on your phone a million times. And it's tax season. You get that as well, right? But who are these people who are enrolled? These are New Testament believers. These are people whose names are recorded in heaven. Luke 10.20 says, Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven, Jesus said. Revelation 3.5, He who overcomes, Jesus said, I will not erase his name from the book of life. Revelation 17, 8, there are names written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Pastor, will there be more people in heaven or more people in hell? I don't know. But what I do know is, is those who are in heaven are those who trust not in themselves, but in the grace of Jesus Christ to get them to heaven, the heavenly Mount Zion. He goes on to say here, and notice this in verse, 20, uh, verse 23 and 24, he says, and to God, the judge of all. Why would he put that in? See how he's kind of upping the game now. He went to angels, to us, and now verse 24, verse 23, and to God, the judge of all. Who's that referring to? It's the Father. The Father is the judge of all. It's because of what Jesus did that we can stand before the judge of all with confidence that we will not be thrown into hell, that when we come to him and hear him speak, we know for sure that he has us for all time, and that's what he holds. But notice the end of verse 24, how he describes those in heaven. He says, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You ever wonder what happens to those people after they die? 
Where do they go? What do they do? If you're in our Sunday school class, you already know the answer to this. They go to what's called the intermediate, intermediate area or the intermediate uh, zone, if you will. That's not the right word, but it, the heavenly waiting room. You're fully present in God's presence, but you're not yet fully with all the people who will be present with God. The intermediate state is the official term. These are the Old Testament saints of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Joshua, Moses, David, Rahab, etc., etc., etc. Pastor Nelson preached on about a month ago. All those enrolled in heaven are those who are, have been signed in the blood of Christ, who've repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. Do you see the difference between these two right here? God has spoken away, and he has said that he's judge, and all those who trust in him will have perfectly righteous spirits. What a great grace that is. Number six he tells you about here, verse 24, he says this. He says that not only are there righteous spirits there, but who's there also? Jesus. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The mediator of a new covenant. Jesus has worked out the final agreement with the Father. He has taken those and purchased those who are now forgiven of their sins and made them to be fit for heaven. It's the Father's idea that drafted, and Christ has fulfilled it all. And finally, number seven, the way, the mountain that does save, the heavenly Mount Zion, there is sprinkled blood. There is sprinkled blood. Why did we sing that song this morning? And, that, and I, forced, I, I had to twist Brian's arm to get this done. I had to body slam him, not really. But I asked him if we could sing that song, Power in the Blood. Because notice what the end of verse 24 says. Verse 24 says that not only is it Jesus who saves you, but it speaks a better word than the blood of who? Of Abel. Do you remember when Cain killed Abel? That God said Abel's blood cried out for vengeance? But even greater vengeance has been done, guys. On that cross, when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. All the vengeance of God the Father was thrown on the Son, and it was done. There's been a better word that has been spoken. Christian, when Satan comes to remind you, the law says this. The law says, get to work. The gospel says, it is finished. And the power of the blood speaks a better word because Christ has died. How do you know if someone is believing on Jesus or trusting themselves, whether they go to heaven well, the bottom line is, is it all about what they have done or is it all about what he has done once for all? And what he's telling these Hebrew Christians is that some of you are trusting in what you're doing, not in what Christ did. Are you refusing him? Or are you accepting him? There is a way. And if you're here today and you don't know for sure if you died, please hear me clearly. You are hearing the word of God this morning. Not a godly man necessarily, but a godly presence of what God has done for us in his word. There is a way. But notice secondly, and this is the second main point, there is also a warning given. How does God speak? He speaks a way. It's not through Mount Sinai. It's not through a mountain that doesn't save. It's through the Mount Zion, through the heavenly Jerusalem that is entered only by faith in Christ. But he also gives a warning. He gives a warning. And you'll notice here that he starts off with that warning. It's very clear. You can see it too in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Guys, who is speaking? Who is it? It's God, isn't it? 
God is speaking. How has he spoken? He's spoken through his son. He's spoken through the law. He's spoken all through creation. In fact, the heavens declare, Psalm 19, the glories of God and declare his handiwork. So what is he saying here? He's saying, do not refuse the message that you have heard. Maybe you've heard the gospel a million times. Do not refuse it. Do not give in to it. It's a warning. How are you investing your life? How sad it would be that God spoke to you the truth and you did not accept it. You notice that word speaking there? This is not in the past. God didn't just speak one time and was done. God didn't just speak one time in the future and it's going to happen someday. He is speaking. It's present tense. Every song that you hear that speaks of Christ, every poem that you hear at a funeral that speaks highly of what Christ did, every conversation you've ever heard about Jesus, every gospel sermon you've ever heard, every word that's been preached, the word of God is living and active and God has spoken. So what is God saying? Well, go back to verse 24. What did God say? He said there's a better word. In other words, only Jesus' blood can save. That's it. All right, you got your pencils ready or you got your pages ready? We got a sword drill coming up. So get your Bibles or your phones or devices or whatever you do, your brains engaged. Go with me to Hebrews 9. I want to take you through a very quick reminder tour of what the blood of Christ has done for us. What the blood has done. Hebrews 9:11. Hebrews 9:11. It says, "But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of what? His own blood. His own blood. Go down to verse 22 of chapter 9. You know this verse well. He says in chapter 9, 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood... Let's see if there's a lot of King James in here. There is no what? Remission of sins or forgiveness of sins. Remission is KJV. It's a good translation. Go to chapter 10 and verse 4. We're going to do this quickly here. Chapter 10 and verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And jump down to verse 10. And by the will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Pastor, what's the point? The point is he's told them time and time and warned them time and time and time. There's been an admonition. You must not refuse him. Go to one more verse. Go to the very first book, very first chapter, chapter one, verse one of Hebrews, and we'll move on. What has he spoken? How has he spoken? He's spoken that his son's blood speaks a better word, but he says this in Hebrews 1, 1. We preached the first Sunday in 2022. Long ago, it feels that way, doesn't it? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by the fathers of the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. Go back to Hebrews chapter 12. What are they refusing here? Guys, they're refusing simply to accept that when God spoke in his son Jesus, that was enough. If you are living your Christian life in a way where you are not satisfied with Jesus, can I submit to you, you do not have the biblical Jesus. If Jesus is not enough for your soul and your Christian life, then I don't know what is. Yes, there are good and godly things, but how many people in this world 
Look, a lot of you have asked me about what in the world is happening in Kentucky at the Asbury Revival. Maybe you've seen that on the news. Um, look, we, time will tell. When a revival kicks out, we want to believe and trust that it's a God's work, and it seems so far that it is, but time will tell. Because some people get caught up in the emotionalism of the day. Some people get caught up in the, uh, the, the, the seeming miracles or miracles that happen, and they want more of it, and they want more of it, but Jesus gets lost in the foray of all of it. Be careful. That great song that we have sung here many times, The Heart of Worship, that story we have shared with you over the months, and, and you know the story. There was a church in England, Matt Redmond in the 90s. Their church was focused on the decorations. Their church was focused on the activities and the programs and everything else. And he did, did a big old pastoral timeout. Whoa, 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 whoa. He said, we're not going to sing any songs. Because he found that his church was more focused on the things here than they were the things there. And especially the one, God, who was there. They stopped singing for a long time. And when they finally got back to it, he wrote that great song, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling them is, if you have missed the forest for the trees, don't refuse him who's speaking. The bottom line, end of the day, it is all about Jesus. What does this mean? Amy, if you'll put that little phrase up there. You need to trust God for everything, but never presume on God. What that's saying is, is that there are people who just assume, presume, whatever phrase you want to throw at it, because they are closely connected to the people of God, that they too must be saved. Spouses of Christians in this room, and I don't know, I'm speaking generally of many people. If you are here with your spouse who's a member of our church or a person of our church, don't just assume because they profess to know Jesus that you are saved as well. Kids, teenagers, grandkids, just because you are here with your grandparents or your godly parents, don't assume you're a Christian. Longtime members of this church, don't assume just because you've done many great things for this church that you are saved. Whatever the case may be, you see where it's going. The point is, we trust God that he gave us one salvation through and only in Jesus Christ. Don't presume to think that any other way will get you there. And that is a life lesson we need to know. That's the admonition, the warning. Second thing here that he gives us in verses 25 through 27, there's an explanation. Look at verse 25. He says, at this time, says, see that you do not refuse him who's speaking. Why? He tells you. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, speaking of Moses, by the way, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. It's, that, it's the lesser than the greater argument is that if Moses warned them and they were afraid, how much more should we be afraid of the one who can cast our souls into hell? What he's saying is we were born sinners, and if we continue to drift away, if we refuse his voice, then we will refuse to know him. Brother Brian had a great insight in our, our times. We were talking through Moses, and he, he quoted R.C. Sproul, the great theologian, who said that in hell someday there will be two types of people. There will be those who are weeping, and there will be those who are gnashing their teeth. There will be those like the man in Luke 16 who are weeping, who, who, who are weeping. Why didn't I believe this sooner? How did I get here? Why didn't I accept it? Oh, woe is me. Go tell everyone. Please go tell everyone. There will also be those who are gnashing teeth. You know what gnashing teeth is? It's like when you try and take 
uh, a bone away from an animal. You ever done that before? Arr, you know, you get that. Some church members, and well, especially pastors, can be that way too. Arr, you gnash the teeth. There will be people in hell someday who, with the most hatred of all they are, hate God so much. What he is telling them here in verse 25 is that if you escape, the only way you'll escape is Jesus. But if you are worried about people on this earth and what they think about your religion, oh, it's just getting started because someday there will be one that you cannot escape. And Brother Isaiah read about that from 2 Thessalonians 1. He is a God who is everywhere, and he's a God who judges everything. Yes, he loves you, but there's coming a day when that love will be cut off because you refuse to listen to him who spoke. But he goes on in verse 26. He says, yet, and he's quoting the Old Testament here. He says, yet once more, I will not sh only shake the earth, but also the heavens. What is he saying? Shake the earth, but also the heavens. Literally, he's going to be shaking all of it. Everything is going to be under judgment. Everything will be made new. You see the connections to the book of Revelation, don't you hear? Verse 27, and he interprets this for you. He says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates that the removal of things shaken, that is, things that made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may not remain. In very simple language, everything is going to be removed. Everything will melt away. Everything. The entire universe will be burned up with fire, specifically in the context. Unsaved people. Unsaved, unconverted people will be in hell forever. That's why, Amy, if you'll put this up, please. In the final judgment, it won't be how much you achieved or how much you owned or how many toys you played with the boys or whatever bank account you had or how much prestige or how many awards you got for the 30-year anniversary of serving at the company, whatever. All that will matter in that day is, did you know the Lord? That's it. And this is the last warning passage in the book of Hebrews for a reason, because he's going to get into next week and through the following weeks about the, the, the church of Christ. It's almost like he's giving one last gospel invitation, we'll get to in a minute, to tell them, Get it right. Church, what are the only two things that will remain when all is said and done? Two things. The word of God and the souls of men and women. That's all that carries on after this life. That's it. And so as he comes to the end, this is how he lands the plane. Remember, he's been warning these people in the church not only to come to Christ, but come all the way to Christ. Don't fall short. Don't come up short. Here's how he ends it. Look at the invitation he gives. He doesn't just leave them out there. He gives them one more appeal. Look at verse 28. Now, you may think this is a good verse, and it is. This is a good verse that you can come to, but how many of your Bibles have therefore in verse 28? Most of y'all are, are for or something like that. It says in verse 28, therefore. Well, you always ask good Bible study, what is the therefore? Therefore, Right? So he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, who's he speaking to? Is he talking to these non-Christians who think they're Christians, or is he talking to the Christians? And Pastor Nelson's answer would be yes. Specifically, though, I think more importantly, he's highlighting what is the acceptable worship? How can they come to know this God? He tells them. 
they must offer to God acceptable worship. What is the only acceptable worship? The only thing that he will accept is a life of repentance and faith, trusting only in Jesus Christ. How do you as a Christian equally live your life for Jesus? You make sure that your life is acceptable with reverence. You, you, you fear God above all, and there's an awe of God, that God doesn't become commonplace. You know, there's a story about an old missionary who was in the Himalayas, and he had one of those fresh, new 24, 23-year-old guys. Yes, I'm looking at you, brother. I love you. And he looks at him, and this guy is so amazing. He's looking out the window, and he sees all the Himalayas and all the beautiful mountains. And, and, and over in the other car, next seat, is the old man, and he's just snoring away. And he shakes the, the old-time missionary up and says, why are you sleeping? Look out the window. He says, son, I've seen that a million times. Let me guess, there's mountains, there's snow, and there's some trees. Yes! And he went right back to sleep. How many people do that with the things of God? You have heard God over and over. You've seen, you've sung the songs, you've heard the stories, you know how it's all going to end, and you get comfortable and lazy, and you lose your all. That can happen in marriages too, can it? Boy, that honeymoon's going to last forever, said no married couple ever. We love each other, but it takes a special intentionality, doesn't it, in a human relationship to keep the fire kindled. How much more does it take to keep that fire kindled above? Well, guess what? Verse 29 tells you, for our God is a what? A consuming fire. And what he is saying to them is this is no little come to Jesus invitation. He's specifically speaking to these to get their attention it's, 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 he's saying, look, if everything else has not gotten your attention, then let me remind you, our God's a consuming fire. He's telling these spiritual knuckleheads, if you want to use that phrase, that you can be outwardly religious, but inside your heart is insulting the spirit of grace. And the only thing that will get your attention is to hear about the wrath of God. How do you motivate your Christian life? Is because God is a consuming fire. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, put it this way. This will be on the screen. says, would that God would make hell so real to us that we cannot rest. Jesus, in the parable of the Sermon on the Mount, spoke twice as much about hell as he did heaven. In the Gospels, Jesus spoke more about heaven than he did hell, number to number. But Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else. May I remind you that this consuming fire, according to the Scriptures, Matthew 3.12 says, hell is an unquenchable fire. Matthew 5, 12, it's a fiery hell. Matthew 13, 42, it's a furnace of fire. Matthew 18, 8, it's an eternal fire. Matthew 25, 41, it's where the accursed ones go into eternal fire. Mark 9, 40 says that this God-consuming fire will have a fire there that is not quenched and will be salted with fire. Jude 7 says that punishment of eternal fire is coming. This making you as uncomfortable as it is making me reading it. I'll quote R.C. Sproul again. They asked him, what is the most difficult doctrine in all the Bible to believe? He said, it's the doctrine of hell. It's the teaching of hell. Not because I don't believe it, but because it's so real and it's so scary. Revelation 14.10, the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, will be tor- they will be tormented with fire and brimstone. Revelation 20.10, the lake of fire and brimstone, tormented day and night. Revelation 20.14 and 15, Three times in two verses, it speaks about people drowning in the lake of fire. 
as he gets ready to wrap up the last warning invitation, he invites them once again to come all the way to Jesus Christ. And for the Christians in that Hebrew group, it should make them all the more say, thank God Jesus died for me. Amen? But for all those without Jesus, it should make you squirm. It should make you feel hot under the collar. It should make you think, do I really know the truth? Look, I've said it before. I I think we're preaching to mostly Christians here today, but I don't want to ever presume that's the case. I respect and appreciate at pastor's conferences people who get up for even five minutes and share the gospel of Jesus Christ because there are pastors who have walked out of the job saying, I never believed anything of it, but I didn't know what else to do with my life, but I'm finally owning up to the fact I don't believe it. Just because you're a pastor doesn't mean you're more saved than anybody else. But if you have family or friends, remember that who's your one, that one person you're praying or thinking about, filter their verses through what we read today. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to tell you, send You deserve the worst, but at the cross, Jesus Christ gave you himself the best. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, amen? And that's what we know. The basis of everything he's gonna lay down the next several weeks is based upon the fact that you can be religious but lost. You can profess Christ but not possess Christ. But if you know Christ, the next several verses we're gonna look at in the next several weeks are gonna make sense. Can I point out one before we go? Sorry, I know we're... We're going over time. Hebrews 13.4 is one sermon coming up in two weeks. Why do we believe marriage is between one man and one woman and pornography and bestiality and all the crazy words you can throw at it are terrible? Because we believe Jesus died for our soul. Verse let, 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Everything we're going to talk about in the next several weeks is built on the foundation that you know and believe in and trust the only God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Not just moral things, gospel things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. These are hard words. Lord, hard words even for me as I studied this week, considered and organized. Hard words for this church, Father, to hear. Hard words, Lord, because we know apart from your grace Every one of us stands condemned and guilty at the cross. But Father, they're also encouraging words because we know all of us who stand condemned and guilty at the cross can stand before that consuming fire and it's just like it passes over us because everything that we were, everything that we are, even saved as sinners, will be melted away by your holiness, covered once again by the righteousness and forgiveness and grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, hallelujah, what a Savior. Yet, Father, we are ever grateful that we have Jesus. Would you, for those Christians and myself in this room, would you instill within us what Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, said, that we would not rest until we consider what it is that hell is. Father, we're not here to be hellfire and brimstone preachers just to make decisions for Jesus. But yet, every one of us needs to make a decision. So, Father, if there's any in this room that don't know you any that may listen to this later, would you help them by your spirit to see the truth? May they not be those who refuse to hear you speaking. You have given a way. You've given a warning. There is one way that saves and one way that doesn't. Would you make that clear to them? Especially when I pray for all the kiddos in this room, and I thank you for all the teachers who teach them each week from birth up, that we would see many kids profess Christ, not just professing it baptized, Father, as a, as a checkbox of adolescence, 
but to walk in the reverence and fear of you. And Father, for any of those in this room, including my own heart, in this week, in these times where we have failed to fear and reverence you and be in all of you, may you forgive us. May you stir that passion within us once again for all things Christ-centered. We love you, Lord. As we sing our last song, we ask this today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.